You. Do you hate ads interrupting your podcasts? We do too. That's why we're trying to keep ads away from Hot Rods of the Sky. The best way for us to do that is for you to go to merch.hotrodspodcast.com right now and purchase some exclusive Hot Rods of the Sky merchandise. Doesn't matter if you purchase a sticker, a hoodie, or a phone case. Anything you purchase goes directly back into the show and helps us fund this without you having to listen to ads that you don't care about. That link, once again, is merch.hotrodspodcast.com. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone. This is Kevin. This is Callan. And this is episode eight of Hot Rods the Sky podcast. Uh, today, we have a special guest with us. Um, the one and only Kermit Weeks. So, Kermit, how are you doing today? Hey, Kevin, uh, Kalen. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. What's happened there? Oh, another Monday, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, just normal work day. Worked on the Vega a good bit today. Good. Well, I'm actually sitting out here in the mountains of Utah doing a little bit of skiing and a little bit of uh, editing. So, uh, uh, looking forward to talking about the the Z, I think, today. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, we want to um, to talk about the Z and and get uh, your take on the airplane and things like that. So, um, what we what we thought we'd do tonight is is actually is or today is um, is kind of go over a little bit a little bit about the airplane, how how it came to be in your collection. Um, you know, things like that. So let's just kind of start in the beginning on, you know, how did you first learn about the airplane and and uh, end up with it? You know, as I remember, Kevin, um, you guys had uh, built the airplane, you know, with Jeff Iker. And uh, of course, this was all un- unknown to me at the time. And uh, I seem to remember and seeing the airplane over at Sun and Fun. And uh, I think uh, Delmar Benjamin had already done the test flying. In my recollection, he flew it, you know, did like 12 flights, test flights and stuff. And uh, basically, I think after the uh, the fly-in, you were looking at potentially at a place to display it. Either that or Jack, my mechanic, came to me and he said, hey, Kermit, this might be kind of interesting here. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, I've got a metaphor here that uh, – you know, at this level of a reality, we're like puppets, okay? We don't have a clue what's going on. But at this other level, there's this higher aspect of ourselves that are the puppeteers that uh, put things together behind the scenes that sometimes we're not aware of. So somehow I recollect that Jack basically came to me or somehow, and would you, you know, consider putting this thing on display or do you want to buy it or something? And I thought, yeah, not really, but I mean, it'd be kind of cool to put on display something, you know, at the time, you know, I thought it was interesting, but it wasn't, you know, like, oh, wow, I got to have that. But what happened was, is over time, the airplane, and I can't remember if it was flown over or you guys trucked it. The we, we trucked it over there. Yeah. Okay, okay. So Delmar was not there. He didn't fly, because I don't recall seeing a fly. So the airplane was disassembled from Center Fund, brought over to my place, put together, and I must have walked by that thing. Like, I'm just going to take a guess at my recollection about six to eight months. And I'm going, you know, I follow energies. I'm going, you know, I probably ought to own that thing, okay? Well, unbeknownst to me, 
little puppet down here didn't realize what was going to happen. But in the long run, when I began to realize what my bigger dream of fantasy of flight was about, uh, that really transcended about just being about airplanes, uh, it's really becoming more about flight of the human experience. We'll use airplanes as set dressing to tell great stories and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. stories of the human experience. But but in reality, you know, so I ended up, I thought, well, yeah, it's kind of a cute part of the uh, aviation history, the golden age that I, you know, I had a spirit of St. Louis and, you know, a couple other airplanes and stuff, but I really didn't have anything that, that related to the, the racing period. And so eventually, you know, you and I cut a deal and, and I bought the airplane unbeknownst to me as I began to realize someday to mimic some of similar what Walt Disney did, I was going to have to create some characters for my park. And I thought, what better period of history that shows personalities that were pushing their boundaries, trying to go beyond themselves, which is the whole fantasy of flight concept. And, you know, the older ones were helping the younger ones take the whole thing to the next level. And I thought, look, and I thought, you know, well, it's that, you know, let me figure this out. Well, as it ends up, you know, GBZ is on the cover of my first children's book, All of Life as a School. So, you know, that was a great example of how I think we all got manipulated that that airplane was destined to end up at Fantasy of Flight. Right, so, right. Uh, that's, that's the way I remember, you know, acquiring the airplane. Okay, yeah, cool. And, and uh, yeah, I, I was, uh, it was pretty, it's pretty neat to have built an airplane like that and have it become the subject of a, of a children's book and plush toys and things like that as well. You know, that, that it, it becomes, it, it gained a life, not just as, as a piece of machinery, but it, it's a character. So to me, that was a, that's well, pretty cool. And the other thing, and I appreciate the work you did because the, the, the work of Michelle on the airplane is awesome. I mean, it's just, everything you do is great. And uh, of course, I think most people know, you know, working on the Lockheed Vega right now and, Anyway, so at some point, after I ended up acquiring the Z, GBZ, uh, and I wrote the book, I realized there was a couple other characters that I also had in the collection that were in the book, and there was like 10 characters in there, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me, because now I realize i got to get all my characters, okay? So I've collected some that, that you know are available, but there's a couple of airplanes that... Um, one in particular for sure that I know I'm going to have to build because the only one that exists, if it does exist, is the original, and that's not going to happen. So anyway, it was it was kind of interesting how, uh, you know, a little pathway in life leads to things you never expected. <laughs> right. And and it's and that's led you to, to now have several Golden Age airplanes. You have the Z, the R2, yeah. a Model Y. Uh-huh. Uh, I've got the, the GDY, I've got the, uh, the, the Laird Special, um, Miss Los Angeles, mm-hmm. Ike, the Ben Goodman airplane. Right. And so th- I think I've got about six out of ten. Okay. Uh, the one, uh, the ones I still have to acquire will be a Traveler Mystery Ship. Um, I'll tell you what, i got my book right here. I'll just dig it out. Um, uh Yeah, the Traveler Mystery Ship, and uh, and Wiley's in there or no? Roscoe, Roscoe was the the Waddell Williams uh-huh. airplane, uh-huh. but the but but the one I'm going to have to build 
that uh, it would not be available was the 1925 uh, little biplane Curtis yeah. uh, airplane. Yeah. And the little character's named Curtis. I can't remember, was it a R something? Or I can't remember what the designation right. was. Right. But it was a little, I think it was a flew in the 1929 race. Yeah. Yeah. Cute little airplane. Yep. Be nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thanks, Kevin. You cost <laughs> me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great thing. You know, it really is. And it's, it is pretty awesome to be able to, to go down there and see all these airplanes together. Um, you know, some of them never existed in the same years in the thirties in the twenties and thirties, but now with your collection, they're all together and people can see and see the differences. A lot of times you don't even know how big or how small the airplanes are and how, how much well, difference you know, there is. Something, in else is, something else that's, that's kind of cool. If there's an interest there, you know, when you buy the, uh, the children's book, you know, the characters that I've got were based on real historic figures or aircraft. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, unlike, you know, some of the other, you know, big 800 pound gorilla theme parks around my, around me, you know, basically I've got something that's based on things that are real. So the little kids can read the book and then see the real character. And in some instances, you know, in the future, you know, they can see the airplanes fly. Right. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah. That's yeah, it's really cool. Speaking of, Flying, um, you flew the airplane, the Z. Um, well, I flew it. I flew it twice. Okay, and what were your impressions on flying it? Well, you know, I come from a background of you know flying aerobatic airplanes, so I was used to flying pit specials, my little biplane. I've been competing and stuff, you know. So when I got in the airplane, I mean, and I think I don't think I talked to. I don't can't remember if I talked. No, I did talk to Delmar before I flew it. And I remember the one thing he told me. And by this time, of course, I had not realized that a couple of years down the road, I was going to end up with the R2, you know, the bigger GV, which is also one of my characters. And uh, I remember the one thing uh, Delmar, Delmar, Delmar told me was the fact, and he learned this in the R2. He said, never come to land and let the airplane get below 100 miles an hour unless the wheels are on the ground, okay? And there's a, there's a scra scratch on the lower wingtip of one of the R2 wings where it was a reminder of him where, you know, the airplane stalled on him and it kind of went down, caught the wing, and he was lucky, you know, the airplane just, you know, he regained control and stuff. So I do remember that. Of course, I think when he flew it, it was probably all off of uh, an asphalt runway mm -hmm. up at... Uh, Leesburg. Where did he fly it out of? Yeah, Leesburg. Where? Leesburg. Leesburg, okay. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm flying off of grass, okay? Well, 100 mile an hour landing speed touching down on asphalt's one thing. On grass, it's another thing. I'm just hoping, you know, I'm not going to, you know, get too much drag and flip over. But anyway, so I went up and, uh, you know, uh, flew the airplane twice. And, you know, it was kind of like, I mean, it was, but it was no more difficult to fly than a pit special. You know, it was squirrely on the controls and, you know, very sensitive and stuff. Of course, I wheel-landed it, you know, based on what Delmar told me. And, uh, you know, his story about the, the scrape on the wing of the R2. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, I didn't do any stalls. I remember uh, Delmar telling me he did stall it. And when he did, he was surprised that all of a sudden it didn't just drop. It, like, flipped down vertical. 
And, uh, you know, when you thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. So I thought, okay, I don't need to do that on my first couple of flights. So you already told me what to expect. But uh, the one thing I did notice was the the elevator was uh, fairly pitch sensitive. Um, I can't, that's a lot since I've flown a pits or my little aerobatic airplanes. Um, I couldn't compare it with a pits, but the elevator was very sensitive. Um, the ailerons, because of the way the control system is linkage, there's a lot of uh, uh, mechanical drag in the system. So what I noticed was, is I could not feel the air with my controls. I was moving it to get the result that I wanted based on what I could visually see, but I couldn't feel it, okay? Yeah. It's like putting your hand outside of a car window going down the yeah. highway going 80 miles an hour. I, I, I couldn't feel it. So the ailerons were very mechanical because there was a lot of linkage. You could explain that a little mm-hmm. bit better, the way it was, you know, it, it's not, it's not a, it's kind of a funky system to, to get it to work. Uh, I mean, it's basically torque tube, uh, you know, out there, but inside the fuselage, it, it just, there's a little bit of a binding feel. Um, so you couldn't feel the ailerons. The elevator was reasonably sensitive, and the rudder was like flying a PBY, a Fokker triplane, or a Bonanza. There was because there's no vertical fin on it. There's about what two inches or yeah, something. Yeah. And a rudder, it was uh, a Fokker triplane is very similar. It'll wallow in the middle, and I think the old B-tail Bonanzas used to do that. Mm-hmm. And they also yeah. had a flat bottom on them. And so it would wallow around and it would kind of go to one side until you got enough side area of the fuselage to dampen the yaw. Mm -hmm. Okay. So literally the feeling of your feet on the rudder pedals was like pushing your feet into a pile of whipped cream. That's how much (laughs) feedback there was. Zero. Okay. It was literally like, it was like pushing your feet into whipped cream. So you had to look and see what was happening because there was no feel. Yeah. You had to also look and see what was happening with the ailerons because there was no feel because of the, the drag and the linkage. And the, and the pitch was you know, reasonably sensitive, probably like a pitch special. Okay. Um, of course, when you get in it, I mean, even if I continued to fly it, there's no way I could do a Kermie cam because your head fills the whole canopy. It's really and, tight. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you hear the birds chirping in the background, but yeah. every time the, the clock hits the hour, I get a different bird. Nice. Um, so so, the, so I flew it twice, and then I thought, well, you know, I need to come up with a video about the, the airplane, you know, and we had a little bit of film footage, you know, flying and stuff. I thought, well, let me come up with a little thing. So I started to do some research, and then I realized, oh, my God, I, I'm reading about the Lowell Bales crash, the 300 miles an hour, the, the, you know, it was bumpier than heck in a winter day, mm-hmm. like in December. It put a bigger engine in it, and he was doing like over 300 miles an hour. And you watch that video, and because I had already had experience like three times with Flutter personally, twice myself in an airplane uh, with the stabilizer Flutter on the week special, and they were on Flutter on the week solution. And we had built two... Stevens Acro airplanes in my shop in Miami, and I did all the welding on the, the airplanes and stuff. And they, we somebody bought the wing, but uh, there was two two friends of mine, and one of them was red with blue pinstripes, and the other one was blue with red pinstripes and white. And uh, eventually, my friend was out there flying one day, 
and got anal on a floater, and he went straight in. He got killed. And so later, the other person, the other airplane built uh, that was built in the shop there, sold the engine and donated the airplane. So I've got the, the blue airplane hangs up in my shop. And so because I've had experience with Flutter and had known people that had been killed, I'm looking at this video and I'm going, that's Aaron Flutter that killed Lil Bales. There's no question in my mind. And I mean, it's a really dramatic and, and sad, uh, uh, sad video. But anyway, what it did was, you know, I'm like, I, I, I was drawn to find out what killed my friend. And so because I was in Miami at the time, Curtis Pitts was a friend, uh, and I used to go down and bug him occasionally. You know, I said, hey, Curtis, do you know anybody, you know, that we could do something to do the flutter testing? And, of course, you know, he connected me with Leon Toll. Leon came down. You were there. There's mm-hmm. a great video. In fact, you need to post post the link whenever you post this podcast. Sure. And, uh, and you can watch us flutter testing the GBZ that you built. And, you know, amazingly, we found out that based on Leon's uh, calculations and whatever, uh, later he said the airplane's got a problem over 240. And Lil uh, uh, Bales was going over 300 miles an hour mm-hmm. on a bumpy day when the wing came off. Mm-hmm. And there's just no, no question in my mind that, that that's what killed uh, Lowell. And it was interesting, too, because... And so at that point, I said, I'm not going to fly the airplane again until, you know, I know what happened. Uh, when we started Uh-oh. doing the video, I found Locked that up. out. And then later, uh, when I acquired the, no, and before I acquired the R2, I asked Leon uh, what they did with the, the R2. The Granville brothers, I mean, there was this story about fuel cap came, that's BS, okay? Yeah. That was just something speculation. But I think the Granville brothers had a pretty good idea what happened. And when they built the R2, what they did was they put a weight in the airplane in the control linkage, but they put it inside the fuselage, okay? And it was it was basically like a lot of times people will say, well, if you uh, have aileron flutter, you put some weight forward of the hinge line. But the problem is most people think two-dimensionally, but it's a three-dimensional problem. And it makes a big difference where the weight is located, located and how much it is, not only forward of the hinge line, but also where it is relative to the aileron and the node line on the wing, which we won't get into here, but if you go watch that video, it's, it's pretty well explained. So, uh, so anyway, um, I asked them about the, uh, the, the fix that the Granville brothers did, putting the weight on the inside, and he said that wouldn't do anything. So Delmar was lucky. Delmar flew that airplane for, I think, eight years on the air show circuit. And prior to my friend getting killed in the Stevens Afro, Leo Ladenschlager had been flying his airplane, which was he called a laser, but it was just a modified Stevens Afro. He had been flying that for seven years in U.S. National Champ a couple of times. So, you know, based on, uh, you know, my, my experience with Flutter in the past and stuff, you know, I continued to learn and try and, you know, figure out how to keep people from getting hurt. Yeah. 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 It was, it was great to, um, that, you know, we got invited, you invited us down to, to be there when Leon was there doing the testing because it was, it's an education and it was, you know, to, to watch someone who, 
it was kind of one of the masters of developing that particular ground vibration survey technique and all of his equipment that he had set up and his, his, um, you know, it, it was really cool. I mean, it's, it's, you could definitely tell he just, he just knew he could walk up to it and touch and then explain to us what he was feeling and what we were going to feel. And, and to me, it was, like the, it was tremendous opportunity. The, the, the equipment was just a way to confirm what he was already feeling with his hands. He knew yeah, what the problem was, much. just how to get it on paper. It's kind of, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah you were there one day, what, Cal? You were there? Yeah. yeah, I don't remember I how I... old I was, but I I was old and I remember old enough to sit on the floor and scoot and sit on my butt under the canopy. So I wasn't very big. Yeah, he was a little tall. guy. <laughs> I remember I would just I remember doing that sitting and then everyone's doing other stuff and I was playing with the canopy. But it was cool to see Leon's setup. I just so, remember like all the stuff. It's cool. But you know, I mean, it's kind of a. Uh, uh... You know, not timely, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, what, what a great thing that, not from an ego perspective for me, but what a great thing that the airplanes ended up somewhere where people could appreciate the fact that they could have killed somebody. They did, and they could have killed somebody, not only the ones back yeah. in the old days, but the ones that were built. Because Delmar, you know, when he sold me the R2, you know, he had a bit of a dilemma. His dream was to have somebody buy the airplane at full price and donate it to the Smithsonian. That was his dream. And, you know, it just it didn't work out that way. So his dilemma was, well, who could I sell this to that's not going to bust their butt in it? Okay. Yeah. And by that time, you know, I realized, I don't know if I'd, I'd probably already written the GBZ book, All of Life is a School. But by that time, I was starting to look around for the other characters. And we went ahead and, and cut a deal. And, you know, I mean, he could have sold it to somebody else that could have, uh, you know, not shown any interest in flutter problems and continued to fly it in air shows until they, the wing came off. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so it's a good thing. So I'm glad they ended up with Fantasy of Flight, you know, to build another one of those airplanes, uh, you know, at this point, you know, would be a fairly expensive deal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I got a fairly good deal from you i think i paid a little bit more for delmar's airplane but uh, by that time you know some some time had gone by as well so. sure yeah so um are there other well you mentioned the um the curtis racer and um a mystery ship there's a couple that you that would help round out the collection is there any others that you can think off the top that would be kind of cool to have as part of your golden age set as far as the racing deal, I mean, I don't think the Smithsonian would let loose of the, uh, uh, the, the Hughes, uh, the H1 or whatever it was, the little, little Hughes racer, was the H1 racer? It's up at the Smithsonian. <laughs> you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Y'all still there? Hello? I lost you. Is it H1? Yeah. H1. H1 yeah. yeah. You're breaking up a little uh, bit, sir. That's what. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, okay. the. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think the Smithsonian would ever uh, let loose of the Hughes H1 racer, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that'd be kind of cool. But, you know, um, I think the, the 10 that I've got, I don't, you know, 
I think I've looked out there when I did the research for the book, and I thought, you know, these these ten airplanes, you know, really tell the the, the story. And so, uh, you know, I don't think there's any reason to get any more. Uh, yeah. The one airplane, it's the original airplane that exists, that at one point was for sale, uh, was the, uh, I think it's the Waddell Williams 44, and it's up in the museum in, in Ohio. Yeah, Crawford and, Museum. Uh, yeah. yeah, at some point they were having some financial problems and they were looking to do that. But, I mean, you know, th those airplanes are all, you know, potentially built from scratch. I mean, the... The, the Curtis airplane would be a tough one because I think that's a uh, that's like a monocoque fuselage. So, but Kevin, you know, since you got all this La Vegas stuff figured out, there we go. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there might be a job in your future. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and um, you know, of course, Wiley Post was quite a character of the time too. So there, the Vega, and you know, he yep. can. The, he's yeah, he's probably Vegas, got a story the, there. Yeah, the Vega it actually is one of the characters in the book, but he would just no, he was one of the racers. Let me go back. And, I gotta go back and look in my book. I don't think the the Vega. I don't think was in the original All of Life as a School book. No, it was not. I think the uh, no. In fact, the Vega the Vega was never written into the book, but it definitely will become a character, as mm -hmm. will potentially some of the other golden age period airplanes that you'll find around fantasy of flight they'll eventually either have stories unto themselves because i've got like a curtis robin and you know some other airplanes like that of course the curtis robin uh there was that uh couple of guys there that you know uh did the uh, endurance thing and it was up to like almost over a day or something like that and they were yeah. refueling in the air you know and out there like moonwalking and stuff so yeah. there's there's a lot of potential there to create other characters um and uh and i'll do that but uh, uh as far as the yeah yeah no I, we'll see uh, there's a big open world out there and uh maybe one day if i can acquire them great if not uh, maybe one day we'll just have to build them all right well um Cal, you have any other questions or we want to um, wrap up? I've had some piloting questions because there are very few people that I know personally are that are gifted enough to be, say, in a pits and then then jump in the Mustang and then jump in the GB and all all these totally different airplanes that that people fly and fly them like that's all they've flown. I can, it was Ben Morphew and, um, and you Kermit and, um, oh, what was the, what's the guy that test flew the Model 12s for us? Oh, Pascarell. Carl Pascarell. So there's just a few there and they fly everything and it's, it's amazing. But the question I have for you is how is it getting in, say, the Mustang and what's your, what's your process of, getting your mind into the Mustang or, or the Z? Is it just, you just know what it is? It's just like you, you your habit or you have a, a checklist that you do? Uh, it's a, that's a great question because when I learned to fly, um, you know, I started in a Cessna 150 like most people with a $5 coupon clipped out of the flying magazine for my first lesson. And, uh, and I eventually, you know, got my private in that and eventually got checked out in a tail dragger, a Satabria, which, you know, began to lead, lead me into aerobatics. 
and I was a gymnast in high school and a little bit in college. And so I was used to flipping around in the gym. So I immediately gravitated towards flipping around in the sky. In fact, my first aerobatic official lesson, my instructor was showing me how to do spins. My first lesson, <laughs> I did the $5 20-minute flying magazine coupon. And then the next time we went out, I mean, at some point during the lesson, we were doing spins over Biscayne Bay in Miami. He, he, he wasn't, I mean, he was demonstrating. He wasn't showing me how to do them. But I thought, man, this is really cool. So, um, so what happened was, you know, I eventually flew that and then a decathlon and uh, eventually did a little bit of uh, flying with Bill Thomas in the Miami, out of Tamiami Airport in a Pitts S2, S2A. And then eventually I got an S2A. And then at some point, um, got the single place Pitts. So I was used to flying quick little, you know, responsive. I'd work my way up to it. And all of a sudden, I realized, man, one day I want to own a P-51. I mean, who out there that's an aviator wouldn't want to own a P-51? Otherwise, yeah. you're not an aviator. You might be a pilot, yeah. but you're not a flyer, okay? And so and I consider myself a flyer, not a pilot. And so pilots look at instruments and fly, and flyers feel the air, like people that sail or ride yeah. motorcycles, you know? And so... so what happened was I realized one day I wanted to get a Mustang, but I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to do that, I need to learn how they learned to fly in World War II. So not that I had an interest in an AT-6, to have an AT-6, but I bought one with the sole intent that I wanted to train in the airplanes that the pilots did in, in World War II for to fly P-51. So I went up with uh, uh, Mark Clark, a courtesy aircraft in Rockford, Illinois, and I cut a deal. I bought an airplane. And we went out and did three takeoffs and landings, okay? And I was checked out, okay? I had read the manual. I'd never flown an airplane with a retractable gear. So I brought a friend up with me with a stick in the back to poke me if I forgot to put the landing gear down <laughs> all the way back to Miami. And uh, so what happened was within about a six-month period of time, I practiced and I gave rides and at some point I actually flew sportsman category in an aerobatic contest in the AT6. Huh. You know, I actually flew it in an aerobatic contest. Heads, loops, snaps, spins, and all that stuff. And so um, when I finally got to the Mustang, I had worked my way up in the T6. Then when I got in the Mustang, I mean, I, I rode in the back seat because I knew I wasn't qualified to buy it. I bought it. It was up in Pennsylvania. It was already scheduled for an air show in Canada. So we picked it up. I had somebody from Florida that was a, uh, you know, a very, uh, you know, big-houred Mustang pilot. And I paid for his way up there, and I paid him. And I rode in the back seat. We flew the show in Canada. We came back down, and he, we stopped at the Sebring Airport. So now I'd been in the airplane for at least six or seven takeoffs and landing. So I knew the feel of the airplane, okay? Read the manual. I got out there at the Sebring Airport, and he basically turned me loose. Of course, well, we just landed. And I didn't realize at the time that there was a few little glitches with the airplane. And I took off, and I had like four emergencies. And one of them, one of them, what wasn't really an emergency, but one of the things that happened was it had two 75-gallon drop tanks, uh, one on each side. And, of course, we were getting free air show fuel in Canada, so we filled up the drop tanks when we left, okay? Well, come to find out, only one drop tank would feed. So at some point now, we got one drop tank empty, one drop tank full, okay? 
So no big deal. We fly all the way back down. We'll get that sorted out later. So now he hands me the airplane. I go out there by myself. I take off. And within, I'm looking down. I did the run-up. Everything's fine. I take off. And, oh, my God, the frickin' the, the uh, coolant temp is going into the red. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this thing's going to blast off because I know the, the blast-off thing is in front there. And all the steam's going to be coming back at me. So I immediately level off. I throttle back. I, I mean, I got to like 800 feet. This is my first flight. And I immediately throttled back. There's an emergency door down on your right on the floorboards that you pull up and it drops the scoop down an additional four inches in case like the, the, the scoop doesn't go up and down on its own. Well, mine was going up and down on its own, but the problem was that what I, what I learned later was he said, oh, well, you know, you need to go and fly around a little bit. Don't worry about it. It'll cool off. Well, back then, people were, like, maintaining stuff. They weren't, like, restoring stuff like we do today. And we had to rod the radiator out because there, the, the radiator was kind of clogged up. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is what we were doing back then. And so that was the first thing. Then the next thing, now I'm on downwind thinking, oh, my God, I've got to, uh, you know, I've got to, land this thing now so i'm kind of in my mind going through the checklist or whatever i put a couple of notches of flaps down you know i'm going down starting to slow down on downwind and then uh so i'm coming around on base and i dropped the landing gear i got a freaking red warning landing gear light okay so i've got a i've got a landing gear warning light going off i can't and then i couldn't get the flaps the rest of the way down don't ask me why but the flaps wouldn't come all the way down I've got a red warning light, and I got one, and I'm thinking, do I drop the drop tanks? Because if I got a belly in, I got one drop tank full of fuel, okay. Yeah. And so as I'm coming in, I'm going, something's telling me, you know, it's okay, it's probably okay. Because I felt the landing gear come down, and in a Mustang, you know, the emergency thing is if you drop the landing gear, it's going to free fall, and you you sway the airplane back and forth, and it'll lock on its own. It's not like a P40 won't do that, and I bellied in a P40 one time because the hydraulic system blew up in my face and the and the landing gear goes back on a P40. So to come down and lock, it's got to go forward. Well, if you're flying around at 140, 50 miles an hour, it won't lock. Even at 120, it won't lock. Anyway, that's another story. So anyway, so I come in and of course now I'm thinking I'm doing my turn into final and all I could remember everybody telling me was don't add a lot of throttle when the airplane's slow or it'll flip over on its back, okay? So anyway, so I came in, I made a landing, the landing gear was okay, uh, you know, I taxied over, and I said, man, the temp went up, and blah, and this, and that, or whatever, and so, so the first thing we did is we went and we looked at the, uh, the, the micro switch on one of the landing gears, and it turned out the micro switch just needed to be adjusted, so it needed to be tightened up a little bit so the light would go off, so we fixed that. And then he explains to me, no, just go ahead and take off and just, you know, throttle back a little bit. Let it cool up and it'll cool off, <coughs> which is what he'd been doing. So I literally went back out and I flew the airplane again. I flew it around for about probably 15 or 20 minutes. And then, uh, you know, then we filled up the airplane, uh, jumped, uh, flew, he flew it over to Fort Lauderdale, which is where he was based out of. Dropped, we dropped him off. Now, I jumped in the airplane. I'm headed to Tamiami Airport from Fort Lauderdale to Miami, and I land down there. And, of course, it's like my, technically my third flight, but really my second flight in the airplane. 
And I threw my bags out. All my friends were waiting. And I started giving rides. So, <laughs> but but to, to continue that further, you know, when I started flying multi-engine warbirds, you know, the first one would have been, uh, I think, the A26 or the Tiger Cat. Uh, you know, at some point, you begin to realize, uh, like, if you fly airplanes of the period that are from World War II and they're American airplanes, the, the thought process is very similar, okay, when you read the manuals and stuff. But now when you go fly a British airplane, it's a little bit different thought process. Now you're dealing with potentially air brakes instead of tow brakes, hydraulic brakes. Uh, they do things in knots instead of miles per hour. They've got some other little things that they do, and sometimes things are like in funky locations in the cockpit. So then you kind of learn to think like a Brit, okay? And so then, you know, after you've flown one or two British airplanes, you start thinking like a Brit, and they become things. So at some point, I've always, always respected the airplanes. I fly ultralights. I've flown powered parachutes. And, you know, I respect them for what they are because just because I'm a great aerobatic pilot and can fly, a, you know, a, a nimble little pit special doesn't mean I can jump into a warbird and go, you know, do a great job. And the difference between what I had been flying a little pits was you could get it into trouble landing by over-controlling the airplane. And when you got into the bigger airplanes, you could get into trouble by under-controlling the airplane and not thinking ahead, okay, because they don't respond as quickly. So you kind of tend to learn this. But the one thing I always did, I always respected the airplane. I never thought, you know, Kermit can do anything, blah, blah, blah. But over time, having experienced flying so many airplanes, and flying the airplanes that I fly that are mine over and over and over again, it comes natural. Now, if I fly a bomber, a twin-engine bomber, uh, I'm going to be using a checklist, okay? But I've flown things like the Mustang and the P-40 and blah, blah, blah. You don't need a checklist. You do everything from left to right. You always do a gunk check. And, uh, you know, and basically, you know, there's just certain things you always do in those types of airplanes. So I don't feel... Once you get to a certain level, you have to use a checklist. In fact, at some point, the checklist could be a distraction in that, yeah. you know, anyway, you know, you're focused on the checklist and, and there's things happening outside that your, your focus is in the cockpit instead of, you know, listening within and sensing everything that's happening around you. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so but at you... some point, at some point, and I'm saying this just as a joke, okay, as a joke. At some point, with a lot of the airplanes that I fly, the like little biplanes here and this that, you learn the little idiosyncrasies. It's like jumping in one rental car and jumping in another rental car. You know, it's yeah. like you know you don't have a checklist, you don't get you know pilots' notes and all that stuff. You know, you basically okay, where's the stereo? How do I do this? How do I change the air conditioner? You know, and you kind of figure it out after a while. But in an airplane, yeah, you want to know where things are. They start differently. They they have different funky things, and you need to know the particulars. I suppose, as a metaphor, I hope I'm not going to offend anybody here. It was kind of like back in your dating days, you know. <laughs> Each airplane had little idiosyncrasies you had to uh, uh, be mindful of. <laughs> so when you when you flew the Z, did you fly something before it that was similar, or you just let's go for it? Um, no, I think it was a more of a let's go for it thing, but you know, I had so much background flying pits and things like that, but I had not flown a pits in so, 
and so, something small like that that was nimble in a long time. And, you know, my, my, my deal was, other than the fact that the controls were a little funky, anybody that could fly pits could fly the Z, you know? I mean, if somebody can fly and, and, and fly the Z or the uh, pit special and, you know, something that that's quick, it's that nimble, it ha things happen quickly, uh, they wouldn't have a trouble flying, flying the Z. And the, the Z, quite honestly, you know, it had great visibility. You know, of course, if you're sitting down in a tail low position, uh, anything like a Pitts or a Mustang or <coughs> the Duck, you know, is a bad one. Of course, the Spirit of St. Louis is the worst because there <laughs> is no forward visibility. Um, but basically, uh, once you, you know, the the, the Z had, had pretty good visibility compared to airplanes of that uh, of that type and size. Hmm. I've never thought nice. And, you know, the thing is, you have to realize, too, a lot of the accidents that happened with the, the Granville Brothers airplanes in the past was because the people weren't flying pit special type airplanes. Yeah. They were flying big Traveler 2000s and kind of, you know, lumbering block. That's what they were used to, yeah. you know. And when they got in those airplanes, man, at some point, you know, a lot of those guys, they got their butts bit. And it, a lot of it was because they did not have the expertise of flying airplanes that were nimble that we do have today. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Well, I don't All have right. anything else on my stuff. You have anything to add? I think that's pretty good. That's, that's, it's been awesome. We appreciate you spending some time with us and um, getting to chat a little bit. And we'll probably see you not too distant future. Either we'll come down and see you or, or uh, be about time to come up and visit the Vega again. And, um, we hope to have you back on the podcast in the future uh, to talk about the Vega uh, or some other projects uh, down the road. Good deal. Well, you're, you've done a great job so far. You're doing a great job for me now. And I hope sometimes in the future, maybe we'll do some more projects together. Thank you. Kevin. Sounds Thank awesome. You, Thank you. All right. Thank Take you. care. Good night. Hi, guys. So you might have listened to that episode and thought, hmm. There was nobody asking any really stupid and annoying questions, and that's because I was not in this episode. Due to some technical difficulties and the fact that I had just sold my house and I was kind of homeless, I wasn't able to be a part of it, and I'm really sad that I missed um, this awesome episode with Kermit. But thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye.